HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Brooklyn Slate, brooklynslate.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. And today we have a book, uh, we have the author of a book on, and her name is Erin Alderson. She's the author of Homemade Flour Cookbook. And this book really has come at a time, I think that was very serendipitous for me. I've been, you know, trying to eat more ancient grains and playing around with them a little bit more. I see talk about, you know, using, I don't know, spelt flour, quinoa flour, sorghum flour. And I'm like, how do I get, I see whole grains, yes. Where do I get the flour? So um, I'm really glad to have Erin join us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for um, this book. It is your first book, correct? That is correct. And um, Aaron, you're also the author of Naturally Ella, the blog, and um, you write for other places like Food and Wine, Food 52, and Bon Appetit. Um, so your focus is on healthful foods. Um, and this book, like, it, it has come at a time when, I'm, would you call it, um, you know, gluten-free friendly, most of these recipes? Um, most of them, yeah. I mean, I explore all sorts of grains and legumes and nuts and seeds. So I'd say about 75% of the book is gluten-free friendly. Well, that's that's really exciting. Um, and, you know, I'm not gluten-free, but I'm really interested in exploring all these different nuts and seeds and grains for flavor potential. And at reading your book, it sounds like you're also really excited about the different flavors and textures and outcomes that you can get from from these grains. Is that what inspired you? Or... Um, definitely. I, I am not gluten-free either. I love exploring all sorts of different ways to use um, food and produce and the grains especially. And I found that I was using all of these whole grains and meals and I was looking into my cupboard and I was like, oh, I bet, you know, I saw recipes kind of like you did for spelt flour. And I was like, oh, well, I have spelt berries. I bet I can grind them. And once I started down the path, it was kind of no stopping. So for some reason, that never occurred to me. <laughs> like, I have spelled berries, too, but I never thought that you could make them into flour. How do you do that? <laughs> um, well, there's a few different ways, but I um, was lucky enough to be gifted a 
electric grinder, which was made the process really easy. And essentially, you put the spelt berry, like any type of grain, into it, and it would grind it up into a different. You could set different varieties of flour, like a fine grain flour or a coarse grain flour, mm-hmm. and that made the process really that easy. Um, how big are these things? Is it like is it New York uh, City kitchen friendly sized? Um. I, I mean, it's about the same size as a food processor, and so, you know, if oh. this is, I, I always recommend that if it's something that, you know, you really want to get into, the electric grinder is the way to go, but you can also, a lot of times, use items that you might already have, like a um, high-speed blender or um, food processor for some things. They're not very good for the, the hard mm-hmm. grains, but for some of the nuts and seeds, they're really good for. Yeah, nuts and seeds, I can see working well in a food processor. So it sounds like, you know, a different tool for each type of grain, maybe, mm-hmm. um, or a variety of tools. Because I noticed you have a lot of great pictures in this book, and sifting it afterwards can help remove a lot of the husks that are on these grains, um, mm-hmm. especially like corn kernels or something like that. So um, I don't know, for some reason, you know, the, the, the idea of milling, um, it, take me back a little bit, um, because I know that, you know, mills were once like a, uh, a play, you know, in every little town or community, um, there was a grain mill, and people had household small mills, like the manual kind, at home too. At a certain point in, in history, um, but I, I don't think you know, in our parents' time, in our even our grandparents' time, that home milling has really seen much action. <laughs> And do you see, like, a community getting around home milling today? I actually do. I think with the the drive back to the, the idea of these unprocessed foods and really, you know, getting back to the, the ingredients and, and worrying less about, you know, buying all of the prepackaged stuff at the store. And mm-hmm. so I think milling at home is one of those those things that, kind of plays into that as well and i think it's one of the things that's a little less known because we hear about you know cooking from scratch and baking from scratch but this kind of takes it a little bit it's another step further yeah and using the the ingredients as many ways as you can so how did you get into milling at home how did you even Um, know it was possible (laughs) to you know it it kind of started uh as an accident really um and it started with the, the kind of the easier things like um doing nut flowers or um, oat flour, actually, because I always have rolled oats at home. Oh, and pulsing the rolled, yeah, the rolled oats in the fruit processor and sifting it, and you have some wonderful oat flour. And I used to make oat, like oat flour pancakes and just Yum. throwing oat flour into a lot of stuff. Um, so that kind of started me down the path. And then, again, I, I always have a bunch of the bulk bin section at the grocery store is always one of my favorite places to go, and I probably overbuy. Um, mm-hmm. But that allowed me to kind of look into my cupboard and say, oh, well, I have all of these other things. So, and then how did you hear about, like, an electric grain mill, or did somebody gift you this, and you were like, oh, great, or? It actually, this is one of the things that's great about having a blog, is that a company reached out to me and and asked if I wanted to review their grain mill, and I said, oh, well, that's interesting. I've never really even researched into grain mills, and then once I got it, I realized, oh, my gosh, this is amazing, because there's so many things that can turn into flour. That is really cool. Well, um, yeah, that sounds like a, a very, like, uh, lucky thing you fell into. Um, so tell me, just like a really tactical, um, does grains flour, like, after you mill it, become stale quicker? 
I I think I heard this somewhere, but just just yeah. trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um. Often, like this is one. And this is one of the reasons I actually really love milling at home is that mm-hmm. um, freshly milled flour because it still has a lot of those nutrients and it um, becomes rancid rather quickly. And right. so. Um, always, I mean, and they, I think they recommend this for flowers not milled at home either, um, that you want to store them in a cooler environment, often the refrigerator or long-term storage in the mm-hmm. freezer. And that's often the case with um, home-ground flowers as well, uh, but they do they can become ramped rather quickly. Wow. So so it's best to use it freshly milled, and um, it has a better taste, right? Uh, when you... I, th- I I personally think so, yes. I think that it, the flavor profile is always a little bit nicer, and also it's it's less of a I always say less of a backdrop and more of an actual well, flavor within the, the meal and it has more nutrients it's more of like a whole like fresh product mm-hmm. so, yeah and a lot of the um, flowers that you might buy at the store that are from the grains um, often the brand like the brand and the um, some of the extra outer layers have been removed and a lot of times that's where the nutrients are and so when you grind the whole grain, you, you keep those extra nutrients that you might not get from the mm-hmm. store-bought flour. Now, I know that a lot of people are trying to buy, like, whole wheat flour, for instance, and, and use that at least in co- some combination with, with all-purpose flour or, or use buckwheat flour and some, like, you know, cornmeal here and there. Um, but it, it actually, it's really uh, revelatory to hear that, you know, you can not only make these at home, but they'll be fresher. And it... It makes us kind of question what what are these things on the shelf? So are are like the pre ground package, let's say buckwheat or whole wheat flour, are they do they have preservatives in them that's making them not go rancid? Or how does that I happen? Don't, I, I don't really think so. I think it's more that uh, again, some of the the extra, you know, like the brand has been removed and stuff like that to help it. I think that keeps it a little bit fresher and also um, I think that's about it. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure on that one. So, like... but I, I know that the grinding at home does because um, some of the oils that get released mm-hmm. and everything as well make it go rancid. Quicker. Yeah, you noted that there's like different moisture levels um, per grain. Um, some mm-hmm. some of like the higher protein grains have more moisture or oils. I don't know um, <laughs> than others that you have to kind of uh, watch out for in recipes because that'll affect the outcome. So, Definitely. so maybe that has something to do with it. Um, okay. So just, uh, I love how you have like little insights about different grains throughout the book, which is really nice. And coming across sorghum, um, you write that, uh, if I may quote you, um, you wrote that <laughs> you always saw three crops when traveling across the farm belt of the United States. And it was corn, soybeans, and sorghum. As a child, I understood that the majority of the plants growing were used for livestock feed and ethanol, and the corn and soybeans I ate were different. As for sorghum, I assumed the plant was grown only for feeding livestock. I was wrong, however, and little did I know that I was missing out on a wonderful grain. And you go in to talk about the ancient you know, purposes uh, used throughout history um, for sorghum, and this is something that is you know, definitely very versatile. And uh, you found lots of interesting uses for it, like the cinnamon coffee cake with sorghum. And uh, tell me a little bit about the flavor profile of sorghum or why uh, you like it. Sorghum, I, sorghum it's, it's funny that you should actually pick sorghum because that's anytime anyone asks me, like, oh, what's one of your favorite grains from the book? I always say sorghum. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because it's not an overly powerful grain. Um, the flavor is, is kind of mellow, but it has a nice, almost sweet, kind of nutty flavor to it that I, I, I really think is a, makes a wonderful flour. Um, in fact, one of my, I think, if I had to choose probably like my top recipe in the book, it would actually be the um, pancakes, the ricotta pancakes that are made with sorghum flour. Yeah, I mean, it's because these are things like the pancakes, you know, cinnamon coffee cake, you associate with like a really light, actually like cake flour um, mm-hmm. or double A or something like that. Um, uh, so the idea of substituting it with like a home milled flour is, is pretty impressive um, for these, you know, light, fluffy cakes. Mm-hmm. So it must have really worked out well. Uh, where do I get sorghum, though? It's, you noted that it's hard to find because it's not grown too much. Um, I often, you can, I, I usually, when I, because I grew up in the Midwest in a really kind of rural community, so a lot of the stuff that I work with now was not available at the local grocery store. And so I learned to really um, look online. And mm-hmm. so I know Bob, Bob's Red Mill sells sorghum. Um, they? They're one of my go-tos. Yeah, they're one of my go-to sources for getting grains, um, whole grains. And they also sell the flour. If, you know, someone wants to test out the flour before they... They try the grain. I don't think I even see it in like health food stores, but that's really good to know. Online sources are are going strong. Yes. Sorghum. Yes. Um, on- online sources. <laughs> and you can use sorghum to make like sugars or syrup. Is that correct too? Or um, yes, they take. It's a different part of the plant, I believe. But um, sorghum syrup is is similar to molasses. Um, mm-hmm. It's a dark kind of syrup. Um, I only knew of it because. My grandmother has a Swedish rye bread recipe that uses sorghum syrup. So that was my first introduction to using sorghum as right. the food part. But, yes. Yeah, I've seen that in the sort of natural food stores. Um, okay, so another one that you made is sweet rice. This is rice flour made from glutinous rice. And I, you know, teaching a few Chinese classes back back in the day, like, you know, you have to look for, I, I remember telling students that it's not just regular rice flour, it's sweet rice flour, or glutinous rice flour. And here you've made it, um, something that is kind of difficult to find and is a very uh, distinct flour. So, and that, how, how hard was that to do? I actually, again, kind of lucked out about honest flowers because I, I um, right before kind of working on this book, I moved to Northern California. And um, we have some really big rice crops here, and one of my favorite rice companies actually grows um, like a sweet rice grain, mm-hmm. and it, specifically the brown sweet rice grain. And so for me, it was just as simple as going to my local co-op and picking up the rice. Um, so it worked out really Stumbled well, but it can upon. be kind of a trickier grain to find. Oh Yeah, yeah. So that is cool. Um, definitely going to try that out. Um, do you have to use a mill for that one, or can you use a blender? Just checking. If you have um, like a Vitamix or Blendtec, you could, you can get by with that. Yeah. Just make sure you sift the That's flour cool, really I'm, well after. I'm thinking the grain doesn't have as much husk parts, so yeah, maybe that'll work. Awesome. Um, okay, so much more to talk about, and we didn't even really tap into your delicious recipes just yet. So we're gonna cut to a quick little commercial interlude, and be right back.
Brooklyn Slate Company is a collaborative effort from Brooklyn graphic designer Sean Tice and Parsons graduate student Christy Hedeka. After visiting Christie's family slate quarry in upstate New York in the spring of 2009, the two grabbed a few pieces for use as all-purpose boards back home in Brooklyn. They found a number of purposes for the slate and began gifting pieces to friends. The response was so overwhelmingly positive that the two struck out to produce a line of slate products. They now make regular trips to the family quarry in upstate New York to hand-pick their favorite pieces of black and red slate. Some of the slate is sourced from the quarry graveyard, a collection of odd-shaped pieces that were ultimately destined to be ground for use as road cover or baseball diamonds. They then transport the pieces to their studio in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where they do additional cutting and clean the stone to be food slate. Every single piece of packaging that comes with their products, from the envelope to the burlap bag, can be repurposed for other uses. The end result is a product completely unique in cut, shape, color, and overall presentation. For more information and to order, visit brooklynslate.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. All right, we're back chatting more with Aaron Alderson, um, back in California right now on the phone. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, okay, so homemade flour. Um, this, you know, this book comes at a time that you know gluten free is growing like a tidal wave uh, throughout all food media. Um, I remember there was like a New York Times piece about how restaurants were saying gluten free gluten free is kind of here to stay, and a lot of um, chefs were adapting recipes like pasta to suit this demand. Um, and certainly, this book I think is going to be. I, I don't know. I, I think that we're going to see a lot more homemade flour. So perhaps a pioneer in that area. Um, <laughs> yeah, congrats. Seriously, um, did you? Where were your sources for figuring out a lot of these recipes? Was it just like home, your own experimentations, or did you find, did you find old dusty cookbooks somewhere about how to make different flours? It was a lot of trial and error. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I one of my favorite things to do is to to experiment and just play around with different things. And so I took a lot of the recipes that I I was I would normally do with mm-hmm. my all purpose flour and um, just kind of adapted and substituted and kind of worked with each recipe until it, I, I found like the nice balance of how to make it work with the different flours. So, okay, then you've really done a whole lot of work here because you have flowers for how many different types of grains and nuts and uh, seeds? 33. And then there's quinoa, which I, I guess that is a seed, right? Seed? Technic- it's, yeah, it, it's always thrown within the gluten-free category, but it, it is actually a seed. Yeah, okay. It seems like a contentious issue <laughs> with that. Um, <laughs> so, so how much, like, because I know you have a blog and... Uh, lively readership um do they ever request to like demand or demand like certain types of grains to try out um different ingredients they want to work with more like really can you make an almond cake recipe soon please (laughs) or sometimes sometimes um because i mean my blog's really i my it's I always think of the book as a nice little offshoot, um, mm-hmm. kind of like a right-hand extension to my blog, because yeah. my blog is really about seasonal whole foods, vegetarian recipes, but I also talk a lot about using bulk bin ingredients, which is where this book comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I feel like a lot of the times, like, um, 
recipes are informed by what people are looking for. And right now people are looking for a lot of homemade or whole, sorry, whole grain uh, recipes. So mm-hmm. you, have, you have like a horde of those. Um, yeah. Which is great. <laughs> um, and, you know, you talk a little bit in the beginning about how you started eating more whole foods just in general um, due to growing up eating a lot of processed foods. Um, was there like a turning point where you felt that like I need to take this to the next level and really dive into learning more about whole foods? Uh, definitely. I was in between my sophomore and junior year of college before that kind of hit. And my father had a heart attack and ended up having a quadruple bypass. And it was kind of a, a wake up moment for my entire family of looking at how, how we were, or what we were eating and how we were treating our bodies. And from that point on, it was just kind of a, a big learning experience and a, a complete 180 for me in terms of looking at um, food and my diet. Wow. So from there, were you, did you just, were you cooking, you know, a lot in, already or did you just have to start to learn how to cook? It was kind of of starting from scratch mm-hmm. <laughs> of cooking because I really well, I, college, I, I knew a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up. My grandparents were my babysitters, and so I always grew up watching my grandmother cook. And my mom did cook a little bit. She she tried her best, and it it just ended up being that we were felt always so busy. And so I did grow up with a little bit of cooking, but it wasn't until I hit my early twenties that I, I really kind of just dived in and, and started learning as much as I could. Yeah, I like how you noted that, um, you know, when you're cooking more, you just start thinking about each ingredient more and and what it is comprised of, like something as simple as flour, um, and then breaking it apart into their separate pieces. So mm-hmm. it's been a fun evolution. And what is what is next? What are you going to dissect um, uh, next with ingredients? Any projects? Um, well, I do have another cookbook coming out, but it's actually more akin to what my blog is like, and it's um, some base recipes, seasonal base recipes, or base recipes that have seasonal adaptions. So I have like 50 different recipes, and there's um, four adaptions for each recipe based on the season. So, mm. But I'm so, also really looking to forward to getting into um, kind of diving more into herbs and spices, because mm-hmm. I feel like that's a huge area that is all, that's sometimes untapped in terms of adding flavor to a meal. So that's also a project. That I'm, that's more of a, a personal project I'm working on. That is awesome. So more like vegetarian or vegan are your next cookbook? Um, vegetarian. All vegetarian awesome. with, with some vegan and some gluten-free recipes. Yeah. Um, so what would you say to people who are totally shunning flour or <laughs> completely from their diets due to a lot of, you know, negative associations with gluten, with carbs, with starch in general? Um, you know, I, I always I always tell people, well, I'm, I'm a big proponent of listening to my own body. And so it's, it's food is a really mm-hmm. personal journey for me and I think for a lot of other people. Um, but I also think that, you know, if, if your body's not telling you that, you know, you should shun all of these things, I feel like people are starting to miss out a little bit because mm-hmm. there are so many different great, you know, grains and flowers to explore. Totally. Um, it seems like never ending too. the amount of grains and nuts and seeds and so forth. Um, how do you feel like, do you feel a difference in like health wise after eating, say, a cake or these uh, pancakes or coffee cakes or 
black bean bow ties with sweet corn hash instead of pasta, for instance? And um, do, do you feel like that there's a major difference in addition to just taste between the homemade flours and store-bought? Um, I, I like to think so, but mm-hmm. I think for me it's a lot more about the, the different flavor and like the different flavor profiles of the flour and less so about the kind of health benefits because right. I do I do think that obviously eating whole grains and whole flour is better for you than always eating all-purpose mm-hmm. flour but I, I definitely am more about the flavor profile yeah and you're not like celiac or anything so no everything's no, all good I, for I now I pretty much eat everything in moderation so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> knock on wood <laughs> I'm just kidding uh, so, and you can also mix them which is what I loved seeing um, throughout your book like you can use some ratio of I don't know. What, what is a good combination for some of your homemade flour recipes? Um, well, one of my favorites, a lot of gluten-free recipes, you want that combination mm-hmm. because one flour by itself may be a little overpowering or you want to mix it with the starch to help get the, the levity of, of the bit good. Um, but one of my favorite combinations is sorghum, oat, and millet flour combined. Oh, huh. Sounds like a triple triple threat of healthiness <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I think the flavor is really nice so that's that's where I like that that one and you've also we're sitting in Roberta's pizza by the way um or outside of it and uh you've made pizza crust what what did you use for that uh the chickpea flour the I make the soca base. that looks um, great yeah that's one of my favorite I I can't get enough chickpeas in my life, and mm-hmm. so chickpea flour is a pretty big thing in my kitchen. And so, and that kind of that's a, a less guilty thing than eating those really thick. I mean, I don't get me wrong; I love the thick crust, chewy pizza, and the thin crust, regular pizza. But this is kind of my my cheater pizza at home. It looks crispy. It looks good. I like yes. it. <laughs> and yeah, the chickpea flour is one thing that I've always wanted to be able to find more readily after tasting um, an Indian friend's uh, Indian chickpea pancakes. Um, it was so delicious. The chickpea just flour has just such a great flavor. I can't get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So you manage to make you know a lot of these things that are we don't think of as being possible without flour. Flour um, like gnocchi here, um, mm-hmm. even spaghetti. Um, so what did you use for that again? I'm looking. Um, I think the, the, I, well, I did the, the black bean flour with the bow ties, but I made spaghetti with the durum flour, which is a derivative of wheat flour. I'm looking at a beautiful picture of the black pepper pasta with goat cheese and pesto in these like big kind of like wheat, uh, just kind of like tan colored, I don't know what you call those, like pepperdell type shapes, and that that looks mm-hmm. awesome. Um, so, yeah, you can make not only homemade pasta, but you can make the flour too. <laughs> this is take really it one revelatory to me. <laughs> What's that? And take it one step further. <laughs> totally. Okay, so I'm really thinking about getting into this, and if I had to buy like one thing over the other, like a high speed blender or an electric food mill. Or something else. Uh, what would you recommend as like one like must-have tool? I always recommend the high-speed blender first because mm-hmm. sometimes that's 
something people already have, and it also serves um, many different uses than just grinding flour. Because I'm, I am completely guilty of buying a one-off thing and then never then it collects dust in my cupboards. And so I, I love the the multi-use tools. And so I think the high-speed blender you can do pretty much anything in it. Um, it takes a little extra time sifting and um, breaking down any of the grains and stuff, but mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to start out. Um, I also recommend you can get a, uh, a hand grinder for anywhere from like 30 to $45. Hooks up to your counter. Um, it's pretty small. It's a good workout if you're looking for one of those, okay. and you can also grind flour manually. Oh, that sounds kind of fun. Get some exercise while you're doing it. Exactly. That makes you feel even less guilty. All right. Well, for anyone out there who's making their Santa Claus lists, uh, definitely, or or Harry Hanukkah list, um, <laughs> these are some good good options. And uh, yeah, for the high speed blender, just checking, we're talking like a Vitamix type of thing, right? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. Um, but thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us. Thank and- you for having me. And congrats on the book. Everyone check out Homemade Flour, the cookbook. And looking forward to your next ones, too. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.